Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's Dr. Scott here with my partner in crime. Dr. Shiloh. Hi, everyone. Welcome to LA Not So Confidential. We are grinding away at the episodes. We're coming up on episode 100. I know. We need to think about what we're going to do for that. I it's got to be something special. It it's does. Al- although it's always special with you, Doctor Shiloh. No matter I what, mean, always uh, so special. So special. <laughs> big news! Big news! We are like getting ready for for CrimeCon. We're I'm packing leaving in the morning. <laughs> we're ordering things and doing TikToks. You pulled my lame old ass into the world of TikTok. So okay, so I will release that one today as this episode comes out. Because it'll be okay. the day before we leave for CrimeCon. So awesome. get your TikToks ready, people. Get your counts ready. No, I'll put it on, on our other social media also. Oh but yes, so obviously there won't be a Get Vocal this weekend because we will be in Las Vegas. But we are hoping to take some moments to live stream and we'll be sure to be posting a lot of things so you guys can feel like you're there with us. We're not doing the virtual booth. It's just too much for us, our little pea brains to keep track of. So nothing official and it will all be through our social media that we will help bring you with us if you are not going to Las Vegas this weekend. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to do some live streams on Facebook and maybe TikTok and Instagram just to um, connect with people. And then who knows what the future will bring as we get more more experienced with CrimeCon. You've got one up on me. This will be my first one. But we hinted several episodes ago, gosh, it's probably been four or five months, actually, that we hinted at something very big happening for us that we were super stoked about. And we've kept it very much under wraps, but we can talk about it now. We are becoming part of Glassbox Media. So we are still part of the Crawl Space Network. Crawl Space is our family. uh, And Crawl Space introduced us to Glassbox Media, which is a a wonderful venture capitalist firm that is getting into media. And we're excited about what they're going to bring to the show. And they're excited about what we're bringing to Glassbox Media. So it is a match made in heaven as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So just stay tuned, guys. We'll do a little announcement because what this means for you is more content. We are going to be working our booties off to bring you some more content, stuff you have asked for. And so we'll probably just put together a special little announcement and throw that in the feed in a couple of weeks. So you know what to expect starting this summer. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Also, we have another walking tour scheduled that we opened up and it's pretty full. I think it is. It, did we have one spot? I think we had one spot available. So as of right now, we opened it up to our Patreon members first. It is almost filled up. We still have yet to collect payment from the plus ones that are attending as well. So we'll see how it all shakes out. What we'll do is... After the beginning of May, when we close the window for Patreon members, we'll let everyone know if if it's full or not, and if they'll, we'll just start a waiting list in case someone can't end up making it. But once again, this has like blown our expectations. So I think we're going to have to do two of these a year, just yeah. every every year, because the last one we did was what October ish, yeah. or was it like September? And that was so our downtown LA tour, right? Right. So this one's going to be Hollywood ending up at the Roosevelt Hotel, and we will do a get-together 
at another watering hole before the tour starts. So it's going to be a whole evening of hanging out, which should be totally fun. And I think we should just start like you suggested, start doing that. We'll go to different cities <laughs> and do find walking tours to do there. We need Absolutely. to get outside of LA. This yeah. Something new. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Well, so since we're leading up to CrimeCon, we, one, thought we would do something a little bit more fun and a little bit more relaxed. However, we decided to take this a little dark to add some other information, of course. It's a balance. It's a balance, right? So this weekend, many of us will be taking the long desert highway from Los Angeles to Las Vegas to our Mecca, CrimeCon. And after you pack those road trip snacks and fill up your gas tank, hopefully without having a heart attack or crying Mm -hmm. of how much you've spent, you might stumble upon some true crime history along the way as you take that 15 freeway out to Nevada. Once you get on the road, being that there really isn't much between you and Sin City, but the Mojave Desert, you can expect some proper wacky roadside attractions, which are my favorite thing. I love the desert and I love to find these weird, obscure things because people have had to make weird, obscure things because there's literally nothing out there. (laughs) So high on my list are some things that I haven't done before, like the abandoned Lake Dolores Water Park in Barstow, California. While you're in Barstow, you can also grab a bite at the original Del Taco. Did you know that you can get the Barstow Taco, which is not on any other menu except the original Del Taco. What's on? Do you know anything about it? It's very simple. I did order it before when I ate meat still. It's just a basic ground beef taco. It's got and meth. a big old... Is it desert meth? <laughs> <laughs> That's what those little flakes were on top. Oh my gosh. I, so, I got to make it so, so fast much energy. That. I got to make... <laughs> It's very simple. I don't know. I'm sure I have a picture of it somewhere. It's pretty um, uneventful. It's not very exciting. But but yes, it's it's the original Del Taco for the Del Taco fans out there. Stopping to see the Bonnie and Clyde death car is also on my pit stop list. So it's currently made its way back to Whiskey Pete's Casino at State Line. And of course, I'm going to have a couple of folks road tripping with me and we cannot miss the ultra cool Seven Magic Mountains art installation, which is just outside Vegas. I've been before. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And just the coolest thing ever from afar and up close. Damn it. Why am I flying instead of riding with you? I am your itinerary bitch. You don't even know that I could have planned something really cool for a road trip for Damn. you. <laughs> well, next time. Next time. Next time. It's because you're a diva. That's why. That's it. Well, I'm planning, yeah. the tr- I'm planning our rail trip to Washington. Yeah. To Washington. When we do the podcast festival up there, that should be fun. Okay. That will be, yes, that will be your thing. But yeah, you're going to have a blast and you're bringing some support. Yeah. As well. It's going to, I know I've already had the girl's version of the hangover in your own words, but we'll see what this turns out to be. (laughs) However, there's a place that I have never stopped a place that has gotten a chuckle out of a lot of road trippers, I think, for decades, and that is Zizix Road. So Zizix, unusual name. It is spelled Z-Z-Y-Z-X. And yes, it ha- it's an exit, so it has a sign off the 15, and it's something that you look at and you're like, 
what in the world were they thinking when they named that road that? And what the hell is out there? The road sign sits halfway between Barstow and State Line, and most people don't give it a second thought other than that. But we're here to tell you about the sordid history of this not-so-oasis. Hmm. You have really yeah. set up a story there. This is one that I had knew nothing about, although I had seen photos of the road sign because that's like a uh-huh. sort of an iconic southwestern U.S. sign there. So our character or one of our characters today is Dr. Springer. And I use a lot of uh, air quotes when I say doctor. Dr. Curtis Springer. Curtis Hal Springer was born December 2nd, 1896 in Birmingham, Alabama. So shout out to Birmingham, where I did my undergrad. He left school after ninth grade and was initially married a couple of times to women who would be integral to his culty sort of get-rich-quick plans. And Springer also had several children. Dr. Shiloh, before we go on, can you describe this gentleman's appearance, as it is quite unique? Sure. So I'll try my best. And if you Google his photo, probably the most common picture of him, he he's a white man, probably in his 50s, but who knows? It was a long time ago. You know, he could be in his 30s for all I know. It's really hard to tell ages <laughs> from the turn of the century or, or just after. He's looking very fancy in a tuxedo. It has a white bow and he has a dark jacket on. Bit of like a scowl, but a very serious face and his hair. <laughs> so his hair kind of looks like a weird bell curve. Like it, it's got a little bit of a maybe poofy pompadour at the top. And then if you can just think of like a bell, it comes down and then sort of around his ears, it starts to to fly out a little and then come back in. So think of it as a male Rosanna Dana, Gilda Radner from Saturday Night Live. Oh, there you go. Yeah, like yeah, a pyramid looks, on his head. It looks very stiff and lo- like yeah. it, it probably would not move even in the desert wind. Um, but I don't know. He kind of looks like a crazy orchestra conductor to me or something in this photo. Yeah. And it's interesting because this guy's life, he lived a, a pretty long time and you know, he morphed from, you know, being a person growing up in the 20s and 30s all the way to sort of a suit and tie guy when he was in his 70s, still promoting the project we're going to talk about. So he claimed a lot of things. He claimed to have been a private in the United States Army where he said that he had taught boxing, although there's no record of him ever being in the Army and not sure that a private would be doing any instruction of any kind, actually. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, In his early life, he was kind of what we would call a hype boy for politician William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president three times at the turn of the century, and was also notorious for supporting prohibition, often referring to alcohol as demon rum. So Springer also hustled as a sheet music vendor at evangelical tent services. So (laughs) it seems like... Wild time. Yeah, kind I of mean, a, a jack of all trade, right? Yeah, it sounds like he's got sort of this political interest, and then there's like this evangelical interest. I don't know. This this already has very like, oh, brother, where out the vibes for me, but I think I'm a couple decades off with that. <laughs> no, I, I think that's accurate. But, you know, when we've talked about confidence men, you know, there's all tor- sorts of confidence men type that are brought towards the places where you can be in control of people, which is right. evangelical movements, religious movements, uh, political movements. So, yeah, it seems like it's got a good fit for this guy. Um, following World War One, Springer worked at a school in Florida. And then the, in the late 1920s, he moved to Chicago, 
where he became employed with an automotive technical school called Greer College. So not really an academic institution, Mm -hmm. um, but a technical school. He was fired by 1930, and the school was forced into bankruptcy shortly after shutting down. We don't know if he had anything to do with the bankruptcy, but interesting that they're so close together. Yeah. Mr. Springer, because we're not going to call him doctor, um, started giving lectures throughout the Midwest, referring to himself as the dean of Greer College, which now no longer existed. And even at times, he would tout himself as a representative of National University, which didn't exist at all back then. No. He also made associations with other non-existent institutions like the Springer School of Humanism, which is an interesting he, title. He just named it after himself. Yeah. And humanism just is such like a broad term. Like, right. what does that mean? The American College of Doctors and Surgeons. Well, that sounds legit, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. The Westlake, West Virginia College. Yeah, which is hard to say okay. because it's, why would you say that? Anyway. No marketing firm would approve that name. Exactly. Exactly. And he was always going by Dr. Springer. But remember, he didn't finish high school. His lectures were always free, but he would ask for donations. And then he really saw the potential at how easily people could be parted from their money. Mm -hmm. When he would advertise his lectures, he often used the suffixes MD, DO, which is doctor osteopathy, or PhD, or other medical doctorate titles after his name. We know a few of those yes. people that do that. Yes. And we are constantly frustrated <laughs> with the people that that decide they're going to take the the psychiatric. For those of you who know what I'm talking about out there, oh, you gosh. know what I'm talking about. Anyway. Go, li- go listen to Crossface. Go listen to Crossface. <laughs> anyway. His first wife, Mary, encouraged him to start a wellness center in Pennsylvania in 1931. And that only lasted a few years because he didn't pay his taxes. Pay but taxes, buddy. You, you got to pay your taxes. But it was a great idea. And so he tried it in several other locations in the state. But they could never get up and going or they were closed down for funny business soon after opening. So clearly not the greatest businessman, although mm-hmm. he was a, you know, he was learning the skill of his con, clearly, because it gets better and better. Um, He and Mary migrate back to Chicago, where he applied for airtime on the WGN radio for a medical radio show. So, I mean, actually kind of creative. Why not take his con to the airwaves if you can't set up your wellness center? Right, right. Not, Not a bad idea. Well, the station did its due diligence and contacted the American Medical Association's Bureau of Investigations for information regarding Springer's medical background. The AMA and the Better Business Bureau quickly began to take note of his completely falsified education record. And before long, Springer had been labeled as a notorious fraud and doctor impersonator by the medical community. And there was even like a really extensive article that was in the 1936 edition of the Journal of American Medical Association titled Curtis Howe Springer, A Quack and His Nostrums. Wow. They wrote a paper in their journal. That's, I don't know, that's just saying a lot. It is. Really interesting. I mean, to give it that he got so on their radar, which good for WGN, by the way, that they were like, no, this everyone needs to be made aware of what this guy is doing and how dangerous this could be. I mean, and remember, this is a time where rapid communication was not the norm. So if you were working your con in the more rural areas, who's going to know? 
like how is that word going to spread? And so I think that this shows that the medical community was not happy about him and basically decided to get organized to spread the word. I think that that's particularly interesting, all humor aside, because there are some some real issues today in the United States about medical doctors and keeping them in line and keeping them licensed and held to absolutely the highest standards possible. But people slip through the cracks. There's a whole podcast series, Dr. Death, right. which is about someone who just kept slipping through the cracks and, and really, really hurting people. So the idea that back in this time of radio being the major media force and when people in evangelical revivals were calling themselves Dr. This or Dr. That, if they were doing some kind of medicine show or had some sort of like a nostrum, as they say, it's amazing that somebody figured out that something was wrong and wanted to check up on this guy. So, And what what is a nostrum? Is it like your platform for your quackery no, or is it what it's you're what selling? It's what you produce. It's what you're selling. Got like it. a nostrum would be an elixir or a tincture, or a medicine, or a syrup, you know, that kind of thing. And nostrum is like sort of the whole category of them. The product line. Exactly, yes. The MLM product line. (laughs) (laughs) But the journal article essentially outlined and detailed all of his exploits and his real lack of education. And it was really used at that time as a warning to actual medical professionals to be on the lookout for him and his shenanigans. The paper highlighted that a most thorough search fails to show that Springer was ever graduated by any reputable college or university, medical or otherwise. So it caught up with him. He was denied the airtime on WGN, but he then successfully obtained a twice daily slot as a radio evangelist on another Chicago station, WCFL, and he began broadcasting in 1934. So his programs were all over the place as far as topics go. They were um, political, wellness, religious, how to live your life stuff. But what he really, really focused on was using the radio show to sell his homemade homeopathic preventatives for conditions such as hair loss and hemorrhoids, asking in exchange only a small donation to his ministry. Oh, now he has a ministry. Yeah, so now he's got a ministry. His medicines included the antacid rehib, which was analyzed by the American Medical Association and found to be mostly baking soda. And he had another one called antediluvian tea, which was found to be, and this is the quote from the article, a crude mixture of laxative herbs. Oh, His, uh, Yeah, gross. His radio shows were extremely popular, though, and they were being broadcast over 300 stations worldwide. And he began to refer to himself as the last of the old-time medicine men. Oh, so Lord. <laughs> he's like sort of claiming that title now. He's he's glad so because there's always been sort of an air of the con man about the mm-hmm. medicine show. So mm-hmm. that's what he is now. I think he would do fabulous as a modern day influencer pushing flat tummy tea on Instagram. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you want to hear a clip of his radio show? Absolutely. I found it. All right. Here we go. In my heart there rings a melody. folks, your old friend Curtis Springer coming to you with a quarter hour of facts about life and how to live it as we answer your questions from Zizek's Mineral Springs, way out here in the heart of the great Mojave Desert of California, 
where we have 12,000 acres devoted to teaching folks how to get a greater joy out of life. Now, we want you to come out here when you can and enjoy this beautiful 12,000-acre oasis. Have a wonderful time with us. In the meantime, have your paper and pencil ready in about 14 and a half minutes because I want to send a free package of one of our products to each of you listening in. There'll be no charge whatever. We want you to use it in your own home and at our expense to prove to you how you can assist nature in building up your system through sensible habits of eating and sensible habits of living. If this is an old-timey, I don't know what is. It's fascinating. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's interesting just, you know, on listening to the first few seconds of it, like that is a well-produced hymn. Like that's mm-hmm. not just a couple of people from the church singing. That's, you know, he had enough money to get to a, a recording studio and get some session singers to do this harmony. And, mm-hmm. you know, he is he is exuding a lot of confidence as he speaks. He's a great salesman, right? And that's also, exactly what this is about. Has like a lovely voice and kind of sounds like, you know, a grandpa figure you might trust. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. I'm so glad we were able to find that. So the market for medical cures was just as popular back then. And it proved to be quite lucrative in the 30s and 40s. And he invested his profits pretty well. I mean, he was hoping to expand his enterprise into a complete empire. Eventually, he tried his hand again in California at developing a full-on wellness center, this time landing in the desert outside Los Angeles, in that area right where you're talking about between Vegas and Los Angeles. Okay, so... Here's your Vegas drinking game, everyone. Whenever <laughs> you hear a key word that leads you to believe this is a cult, take a drink. <laughs> you may not make it through the show. So in 1944, Mr. Springer, again, yes, I refuse to call him doctor as well, decided that he would reinvent the area formerly known as Soda Springs, which is in the Mojave Desert, again, smack dab between LA and Vegas. And he did this by taking advantage of the mineral springs found there and decided to turn the entire area into this big wellness center and resort. However, in order to use the land for free, and by this time he was actually divorced Mary and was married to a woman named Helen, who was also quite savvy. And Helen told him, You know, if you go and say you're going to mine this land, the government will just let you stay there. They will just give it to you, essentially. So that's what he did. He filed a mining claim with the government and was granted permission to use 12,000 acres of land. He had no intention of mining the land. So I think I smell a little bit of a fraud scam here. And he called it. Everybody's taking a drink, right? (laughs) I hope they took a drink at Wellness Center just several times already, but he decided to call it Zizek's because he wanted to have the last word in the dictionary. Since he and his wife also had a place in Los Angeles, they were very familiar with the down and out folks living on and around Skid Row in downtown LA. So this is what they did. They decided to get a bus and they drove this bus to Skid Row and they recruited unhoused people to come work on his property in exchange for room and board. Okay, so let me get this straight. We have people in unfortunate situations being bussed out to the middle of the Mojave Desert with essentially no way to get back. Uh-huh. 
So I'm just going to take a wild guess here and say that they turned into followers, big old air quotes, followers, right? I mean, did they have any choice? Would it, you know, yeah, how are you get back home, right? Exactly. And what he did is he used them as laborers to build his wellness and medical resort. They started off living in a row of tents. There were some old buildings there that had been used by the army actually at one point. So those had been very dilapidated, but they used a little bit of those as they were getting up and going, but eventually built structures to live in. And for their labor, you know, in return, I like to imagine that Mr. Springer fed them with his baking soda concoctions and maybe let them have a soak in the natural hot springs that they had developed out there after a long day's work in the, what, 115 degree heat. But even the hot springs were a sham. They were not natural at all. What he did is he had diesel-powered boilers installed underneath to create heat. Oh, my God. So as an imitation hot spring, I'm telling you, he's a charlatan wow. all around. They also built an artificial lake at the center of the resort named Tuen Day, a Native American word, meaning where the waters come together. And the grounds consisted of what he referred to as a, a two-story castle. It was essentially um, rooms for people to stay at, not necessarily long-term, like almost more of a, a hotel style there was a dining hall, a library, a lecture room, of course, a pool house, a goat farm, sounds kind of cool, and rooms for rabbits. And then there are roads named things like the Boulevard of Dreams. So there would be signage so you know, hey, I'm going to go to the castle at the end of Boulevard of Dreams. <laughs> well, where did all the... Where did all the money come from to build this? I mean, was he selling that much diarrhea tea by mail yeah. order? Yeah, he so he would have to make special trips back and forth to LA, but not just his products, but also treatments at the wellness center. So everyone came out oh, to stay, okay. but then he would say, oh, for this ailment, I have this special treatment and that's going to be $25 or, you know, so it was all of this a la carte stuff that was happening once you were bust out and trapped in the desert with this guy. Wow. Of course, he continued his radio show. He had he broadcasted from the wellness center and promoted the resort over the airwaves, encouraging people to come stay there. I also learned in my research that what he would do is if someone across the country wanted to come to the wellness resort, he would say, you can come for free, but if you can't afford to get out here, why don't you contact your church let them know who I am, that you want to come here and I'll work a deal where they can raise some funds for you. So he was getting other religious organizations for pay, to pay for people to come to him. But he was really using this vast radio network, remember, to just continue to get people to either come out or buy things. And by traveling back and forth to Los Angeles, Curtis and Helen would deliver the recordings for his latest sermons. They would purchase advertisements when they were in LA and newspapers and then order the medical supplies and the ingredients for his concoctions. You know, like their shopping list was baking soda, celery, carrot juice, <laughs> snake oil in the desert. <laughs> yeah, everything old is new again. Right. But his resort really took off and it brought people from all over to try his fake medicines and to experience the 
relaxation and healing that his resort purported to provide. And this went on for three decades until finally in the 1970s, the government was like, huh, I wonder what that guy out in Soda Springs has been mining in that land that we gave him all those years ago. And they set out to do an investigation and realized he had done nothing of the sort. So they kicked him and his followers out for squatting. He actually ended up, because he had so much attention brought on him, he ended up getting convicted of false advertisement. That's the only thing they could really get him on, I guess. And he served like 30 days, 30, 40 days in jail or something like that. So they didn't go for like medical fraud or practicing without a license? Nope. Interesting. And I wonder if, you know, again, kind of falling under this religious sort of category that he was able to skirt some of that. But over the 30 years that he managed the resort, he shipped over 4 million packages of his concoctions all over the country, including the teas you were talking about, something called nerve cell food, and another thing that he named the Hollywood pep cocktail. Hmm. <laughs> what what would that include this, these days? <laughs> oh, there's a lot it would include now. Probably fentanyl. But the nearby town of Baker, which is the closest, also has the world's tallest thermometer, if you're looking for another roadside attraction. <laughs> the Baker had to build a post office just to deal with all the mail services eventually because he was, you know, he was able to get them to do that so he wouldn't have to go back and forth to LA anymore. But it's just... It's wild to think about how long he rode this wave and where people sort of were in their lives at the time. But it also made me think, do you remember that modern day kombucha cult in Los Angeles, like eight years ago or something out in Venice? Oh, right, right. It had the actor, Andrew Keegan was the guru of the whole thing. He had been in like seventh heaven and some other things and they were called the full circle, I don't know, group or whatever, but they were brewing illegal kombucha and got busted by the ATF. <laughs> so were they selling it? I mean, I remember yeah, that, that he had, it was, so. it really was a cult. I mean, that, it that was, was yeah, definitely, definitely cult. culty. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, it, I think they were brewing it and selling it and that was kind of their thing to bring in revenue, but just reminded me of that little tidbit too. Yeah, he ended up after all of this, he was, you know, in his late 70s and he ended up sort of closing up shop and taking what he could and retiring to another state. I think it was Arizona and just sort of really wasn't found to have engaged in any other activities. I guess he had made enough a run and maybe, you know, if he only did 30 days and they didn't take away the money he had earned. um, Right. True. Do we know if any of the original buildings are still out there? Is the castle still there? Um. Yes. So that is some of the stuff I'm hoping to explore on my road trip. Oh, but cool. you want to talk a little bit about like what that area looks like today? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because uh, this is a particularly American experience and a lot of it occurs out here in the Western lands and the Northwestern lands, particularly like Alaska and Southwest U.S., although it can happen in other parts of the states. And that's the idea that it's um, unincorporated areas. So Zizek's was formerly Soda Springs before he got it to change. And it's an unincorporated area in San Bernardino County. And it's within the boundaries of the Mojave National Preserve, which is now managed by the National Park Service and it's public lands. 
So like you were saying, the site is the location of Lake Tuinde, which is was originally part of the spa. And now they kept it as the refuge habitat of this endangered fish called the Tui Chub. <laughs> and it used to be found only in the Mojave River. And it's uh-huh. one of those that is very controversial out here in the West because, you know, we want to preserve endangered species and people get really pissed off when they think, well, why is that fish keeping me from watering my lawn? Right. Um, That's the kind of thing that pisses people off. So the natural spring system, which was not necessarily a hot springs, but there was a natural spring system there, was used by the Mojave and the Chemehuevi people for many generations. And by the mid-1800s, it was used by early Western explorers and even the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. So like you're saying, Zizix or Zizix Road runs from the 15 freeway 4.5 miles to the actual area of Zizix. It's partly paved and part dirt. So if you guys ever are heading out that way or you're on the 15, you should expect a real hills have eyes situation on your road (laughs) trip because it's very in the middle of nowhere. That's okay. It's totally fine. I'll be armed. Okay. (laughs) So in 1976, the California State University took over that facility and now operates a desert studies center there, which is very cool. And they do a lot of really interesting work. Mm -hmm. It's still open to the public. And thanks to its pools of water, it's a fantastic location for birding if you're into that. Visitors are invited to walk around the lake and imagine being one of the guests here when the resort was at its prime. It's actually really a beautiful place. So the buildings across the lake run private property, sometimes occupied and, you know, in these kind of situations, you know, don't disturb the residents if you make it out there. Yeah, I think it's mostly people from the college that are going out there to study and things like that. And they might spend the night to gather their research, but sounds very cool. It uh, does supposedly sound... it like a lot of it is very apocalyptic looking. Like there's an old swing set and uh bunk rooms, but I'll shoot lots of footage and I will report back for sure. Yeah. I remember when I was doing um a traineeship at Cal State Channel Islands. And for a lot of people don't know is that It's in Camarillo, a little bit north of Los Angeles, and that entire campus used to be one of the California State mental hospitals. And there's rumors that it is actually the Hotel California that is um, referred to in the The uh, Eagles songs. But what I found fascinating about when I was doing the traineeship is there was still like a whole row of buildings that had not been renovated. And you could walk all the way to the back of the campus and look in to these rundown rooms that used to be part of the state hospital. And you'd see like, you know, broken hospital furniture and into what were bedrooms and like broken dolls and stuff. It was super creepy. So See, I always thought Hotel California was about the Chateau Marmont. Maybe. Maybe it's a blending of a mental institution and a fancy Hollywood hotel. <laughs> With a lot of drugs. <laughs> All of the above. With a lot of drugs. But look, I am glad that you'll be armed because I know you'll also be very careful. And besides the shenanigans of Mr. Springer, there's definitely an aura of mystery and danger about desert life in south- southwestern U.S. Like any rural area that provides people to drop out of sight of society or maybe even drop a body. A yep. desert setting definitely provides what you need. And there is really a culture of the desert out here in California, particularly in these areas that are unincorporated like I talked about before. So that means it's not governed by a local municipal corporation. Many unincorporated communities and areas are really a distinguishing feature of the United States and Canada because most other countries in the world would rarely 
categorize any of their land in this way. Like it's all either government land, you can use it for this amount of time, get off, or mm-hmm. it's private property. Here in the U.S., we have a very, we have so much land that it's, you know, it has a lot of different statuses. So if you live in an unincorporated area, it means you might get your water from a well, but you might have a contract with one of the local electric companies to run a line out to you. Look, at, This is also very important that law enforcement would be covered by the county in which that unincorporated land is. So out here in Cali, that means that you could easily be an hour or more away from law enforcement. And that's the way some people like it. Well, Um, and San Bernardino County is the biggest county in the nation. It's enormous. Vast. Yeah. Vast. So I found it really interesting that in 2011, there was an LA Times article where they were interviewing about a big murder case, San Bernardino Deputy Coroner Bob Hunter. And he was quoted as saying, we are constantly finding bodies in the desert. We've had a lot of unsolved cases that were many, many years old. Oh, I so, bet. And they're continually, you know, finding. Southern California has always had like active lifestyles where people really like going hiking Mm -hmm. and camping and stuff, but it's really reached a new point in the last decade. Like people do extreme survival training out in the desert. Like there's a whole business built up around Mm -hmm. it. So I think that that's probably lending to the fact that more and more of these types of crimes and bodies are being discovered. Yeah. Have I told the story before on the show of when I was in undergrad and we would go out on these hunts? Like we had a, so speaking of the Cal State system, I went to Cal State Fullerton and there was a very renowned forensic anthropologist that taught in the anthropology department. And so what she would do is she knew all the criminal justice students were a bunch of weirdos. So she would say like, hey, who wants to sign up to go look for this head in the desert outside of Palm Springs because what last year. Yeah. So she, she would be hired by these counties to do the forensic anthropology, but essentially like in the desert, they would find a body, but then they wouldn't find the head. And so they would figure, okay, it's probably buried out here. Let's wait until the rains come and then we'll go out and send a search party. Oh my God. And she would recruit us to go out there and, (laughs) and search. And we were like, yes, sign me up, please. Let's go stand in the 100 degree heat and look for a head. That actually sounds amazing, especially if it's like, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, it's it's tragic because it's somebody's life that was lost, but that's fascinating that, you know, you're using these skills or you're learning these particular skills to like look at water patterns or erosion exactly. patterns and where, exactly. would, where would it be accessible to get to a place? I think that's a fascinating experience. Yeah, so we would caravan out there and then she would give a little like mini lecture almost on those sort of things that you're talking about. And then of course, like if you think you found something like what to do and how we would do all of that, we never found, I think we found one time we were like, oh my God, it's a grave. And it ended up being a dog or something like that, but no body part, human body parts found on my watch. Hmm. Yeah. However, the majority of the California region of the Mojave is monitored by the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office. While the Nevada portion, so across the state line, is going to fall under the jurisdiction of Kern County, because towns on both the eastern and western borders have experienced homicide spikes over the past 15 years, San Bernardino, in San Bernardino and Las Vegas, both of them, law enforcement agencies are often spread really thin when covering the area. To put this in perspective, San Bernardino saw a 43% increase from 2015 to 2016, just within one year. In Las Vegas, 
during that time saw a 36% increase in homicides. So you just, I think of all the crazy things that can go wrong and the nefarious activity in Las Vegas in and of itself and why people would want to be crossing state lines, you know, maybe fleeing LA or fleeing Vegas. And it's just, it's like they could do a whole like cops, like reality television show of the stretch of the 15 freeway. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it would be a freaky noir, you know, just like, yeah, you know, all the periods of time where nothing's happening. I, I do think it's really interesting because those stats are so jarring to think of it in terms of sort of there's a, a talking point in politics that always wants to talk about the level of violence in big metropolitan areas. Uh-huh. So they're talking about like New York and L.A. and Chicago. And what they don't look at is like these increases in these areas is not reflecting the big metropolitan areas. It's reflecting something that's going on in the places in between. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's like a scene from Casino, like Casino, great movie, which personifies desert body dumping in a really frightening (laughs) way. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on out there because there's, that's a, you want to go to a place where you're not going to be found if you're going to be doing criminal activities, which is part of our John OJ episode that we explored. So there is one thing now shifting from really the humor now that we kind of set up the idea of the wackiness that can happen in the desert. One of the things that we'll talk about very briefly, because it's been done to death and done very well in documentaries and reports, is the entire family murder of the McStay family, which is just brutal. Even 12 years after the event and with the murderer convicted, there's a lot that remains unknown about the murders of Joseph and Summer McStay and their two kids. They appeared to vanish from their Fallbrook, California home in 2010, and they left so many questions about the recording of their last moments that was done on, I think it was security camera footage. Like, there was food left on the table, the security cam footage of this really bizarre and wildly unorganized packing job into their SVUV that led a lot of people to think, are they on drugs? Which I think Mm -hmm. it was misleading because the sped up footage, the sped up footage that was shown on multiple news outlets sort of added to the oddity of this family preparing to leave. Yeah. Because it really, it wasn't organized. Like you just think of like sort of mom and dad energy of we've got two kids, let's do this organized and it's just this back and forth and back and forth with like bringing out one small thing and putting Mm -hmm. it in the back. And I found it interesting that in the online discussions, there were even people drawing a parallel to the elevator footage of the Cecil Hotel guest, Elisa Lamb. Right. She was having her manic episode and sort of jumping in and out of the elevator. So kind of the sped up, the weird like speed of it. Yeah. The glitchiness of it is just very odd. I mean, and Again, as we always say, it's very difficult to understand what the motivations for things are. Maybe they were only going to go out for a day, and that's why they left fruit on the table, and that's why they left a bowl of popcorn on the futon. But but who knows? Anyway, they disappeared, and their their car was found with no bodies, mm-hmm. and it was just this mystery, and there was a miscommunication between law enforcement agencies and neighbors Some people thought that they had gone out of the country for an extended period of time. Just very, very confusing and sad. Well, I think there was even footage of a family crossing into Mexico at the border that for sure they thought that was them. Because it had two little kids, right? Right, right. Right. But three years later, their remains were found buried in shallow graves in the Mojave. 
And, you know, look, after nine years of a mystery that generated books, articles, documentaries, and a lot of focus by several true crime shows, a jury finally concluded that Charles Chase Merritt, who was a former business partner of the McStays, was guilty of bludgeoning the family to death and then burying their bodies in the Mojave. Brutal, just to think about, like, you, you've got a, a beef with dad, so you take out mom and dad, and then you have to take out the kids because they're witnesses of it. And it would have never gone discovered, except for, like I was saying, the increased activity in the area three years after the event a cyclist just discovered parts of a skull right off the interstate of 15 right there in Victorville. Oh my gosh. And although much of the evidence was circumstantial, it was determined that Merritt had been embezzling money from the McStay business and had been confronted by Joseph McStay with the evidence of his fraud. And he just decided to take out the entire family. DNA evidence on the McStay's SUV implicated Merritt, as well as cell phone evidence that showed him in the vicinity where the bodies were found. That cell phone evidence also showed hours of going dark, and that was around the time of the actual disappearance. On Tuesday, January 21st, 2020, he Chase was sentenced to death for killing the McStay family. Just a very sad local case here. Really sad, and as much has been done about it, it's... It's one of those things where there's a little bit of a backstory where it's implied that McStay was actually really trying to help Merritt out. Merritt had had problems, right? maybe had a little bit of a record, and he was like, look, I can give you work. You're trained as a welder. Mm-hmm. And then for it to turn so horribly on this entire family, just brutal. Yeah, there's, you know, pockets. The desert is just, like we said, so vast, but then... You So you have areas where you can go out and do your business, whatever that is, and not be seen, but also hoping that what you're doing out there is never discovered. But you were kind of talking about, you know, these, these very unique communities that get built out there and the way that people are just off the grid if they want to be off the grid. I think people understand it with mountain communities very well because you think they're really isolated. And it's the same with desert. You have... People that do not want to be found, do not want anything to do with society, whether that's just how they want to live or whether it's linked to some criminal activity or something like that. But of course, with all of this stuff that goes on in the desert, there is a movie. Actually, there's a couple movies tied to Zizek's Road. Interestingly, in the Zizek's Road film, They spell it incorrectly with an extra Y. It's Z-Y-Z-Z-Y-X. And get this. So this is so interesting. Just a little bit about the entertainment business here. So it stars Tom Sizemore and Katherine Heigl. What? Have you ever heard of this? I know. No, I've never heard of this movie. (laughs) It came out in 2006. And you've probably never heard of it, even with these big stars, because it's actually infamously known as the lowest grossing film of all time. Wow. It cost $1.2 million to make, and it made $30 at the U.S. box office. So these are lovely actors. Um, It can't be because of that. There is a story behind this. The producers really wanted, they, they intended with this movie for it to make it big outside of the U.S., 
but they also wanted it to fall under the criteria of a quote-unquote low-budget film so they could pay their stars less than normal because if you're... If, if a film is classified as low budget, then... It's a different scale for pay. Right. Yeah. It's, yes, exactly. So they made all of that work, but in order to have it fall under the criteria, they had to have a U.S. theatrical release. So what they did is they ran it once a day for six days at a single theater in Dallas, Texas, giving it zero publicity... And I think, I think accurately, so it made $30, but, but yeah, so, you know, six people or something like that went to see it. And one of the people who went to see it was the makeup artist from the film. And then she brought her boyfriend or friend or something. And when one of the, the producers or people associated with the movie heard about that, they were like, oh, here, let me give you your money back. So there are actually some reports that it only made like 20 bucks <laughs> total wow. because two people got refunded their money. Well, now I've got to see at least like the first 10 minutes to see how bad I it could is. not find it anywhere. Okay. I think you can buy the DVD for more than $20 for more than what it made <laughs> in the US. <laughs> but the plot line is that there's an accountant that meets a woman in Vegas And then her crazy ex-boyfriend, Tom Sizemore, who I adore, finds them and they kill the accountant while they drive out to Zizek's road to bury him. And when they get there, the body's gone. And then it's sort of this like cat and mouse survival thriller after that. But weirdly, and this is so weird how this happens in Hollywood. Maybe you can explain it to me. But that same year, another movie named Zizek's Road with the correct spelling was made they renamed it Burned, so you can find it after that. And the tagline is, the road may lead to nowhere, but three people find themselves baking in a desert of murder, mystery, manipulation, and greed when the legendary road becomes the place where their destinies collide. <laughs> That's a really long tagline. It's a very long tagline. And it doesn't really tell you anything at all. It has so many adjectives in there. (laughs) Yeah, you know, every once in a while, something weird will happen like this where there's a synchronicity where two, you know, war movies about the exact same topic will come out. Um, Or two, you know, there... Two asteroid movies came out the same year. Exactly. And also, (laughs) even though Star Wars was a big seminal motion picture... Mm-hmm. That had nothing had been done like it before, really. Um, but there were other science fiction movies that came out at the same time that were almost kind of having the same theme. And then there was like lawsuits that were generated, whether or not. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's zeitgeist, you know, spirit of the times. Like sometimes people just come up with the same ideas. Who knows? Uh-huh. Maybe, maybe that's one of those cosmic consciousness things. But maybe anyway, there's just a lot of, you know, there's a lot to plumb in the stories that come from the desert. You know, like I said, Casino, definitely a lot of bodies get tossed in the desert in this one. It's described as a tale of greed, deception, money, power, and murder occurring between two best friends, a mafia enforcer, and a casino executive who compete against each other over a gambling empire and over a fast-living and fast-loving socialite. So I'm not always a fan of Sharon Stone. She's unbelievable in this movie. So unbelievable and tragic like you love her hate her and then feel so sorry for it's just like someone caught up in something much bigger than them oh man does she play like a spun out mobster girlfriend 
so well. Yeah. When she leaves to go to the bar and she has like tied their daughter up. So she doesn't go anywhere and she's going to be safe. And she thinks that's like the but thing that's to okay. Do. Jesus. Yeah. Great movie. Yeah. But she, but also like they frame it that she's so far into her addiction at that time because she's oh, just yeah. doing so much coke. And then another one that this one did really well and it's actually a good movie. It's really very much representative of like late 80s, early 90s is California. And that with is about, what's that? With a K. Yes, California with a K. And that stars Brad Pitt, David Duchovny, and the always delightfully unhinged Juliette Lewis. So good. I mean, she's like a young Amanda Plummer. She's always going to play somebody that's like got an edge yeah. and really good. But it's it's a really interesting story. So these two journalists are going on a tour of serial killer sites with their two companions not knowing that one of those companions is also a serial killer. So it's actually yeah. worth watching. It's, I haven't it's, watched that in a long yeah. time. It's good. Mm. It is good. It is good. Well, I this has got me so, you know, I don't think many people get excited for a four-hour road trip through dirt and cactus, but <laughs> I love it. The trip out there is always great. Coming home, you're kind of like, Ugh, I just want to get home. This sucks, but I'm going to have good company. I know we're heading to something super fun. Absolutely. And we're going to have some cool things to see along the way and just kind of chat about the the true crime that has happened along the 15 freeway. Yeah, it's going to be great. We will have other things like this now that the world is opening up again and we can actually start traveling yeah. and going to the conventions. We're going to have some other stuff. I'm really excited about taking Amtrak for a very long time. It's I've always wanted to do that. Right. And I've convinced myself I'm going to, and I'm going to grab as many people going to the, the festival as I can to. You're literally forced just to like chill and relax and right. make your way to wherever you're going. And the Wi-Fi is supposed to be spotty, which makes it even better, which means I can <laughs> read and watch the scenery and do some writing and not, you know, Perfect. be uh, hooked to the web all the time. Yes. But folks, look for us as this episode drops just a couple of days later. You'll be getting updates all over social media from us at CrimeCon. We're very excited about being on Podcast Row this year. It's going to be yep. fun. Yep, absolutely. All right, we hope you enjoyed this one and we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye folks. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. 
Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening and join us next time.